0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 19 again, just for a brief bit of context to where we're going to be today, and today we're going to continue in the study we've been working through all summer. But in Matthew chapter 19, uh, the Lord Jesus is having a conversation, as is often the case, He's having a conversation with the Pharisees, and they are uh, ulterior in their intentions here, they're trying to trap the Lord, and He establishes not only that God's Word is is true, but that God's word was true, and this has great implications for where we are today. So let's look at this passage just briefly. In Matthew 19, verse 1, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of gathering to hear your word taught and to, to hear your word read and to hear your word explained and to sing your word as your people. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given to us, a word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce down to the very division of, of bone in us, to reveal to us the, the deep needs that we have in our souls but also to give us instruction. And so as we think on this passage and its implications for this study on biblical womanhood, Lord, I just pray that you would guide us. Let me be bold and courageous as I need to be to speak your truth to our sisters today. And I pray that you would accomplish your purpose to to shape and mold and conform us to the image of Christ. And you do that through the preaching and teaching of your word. And so I just pray that you would accomplish this, your purpose in Jesus' name. Amen. While there is much to learn from this interaction, one of the glaring truths which I brought out last week is that in this passage, the Lord Jesus confirms that God's plan for men and women, God's plan for marriage and family, hasn't changed with the times. Thousands of years may have passed, but God's creation and design of humanity hasn't changed one bit. Now, if you're just joining us, we're in the sixth week of a study on biblical anthropology, a biblical study of man. We're studying God's Word to get a better understanding of our dignity and identity and purpose and destiny as men and women. Uh, Breck Wheelock preached for four weeks answering those questions, and I started last week by looking at biblical manhood specifically. Today, I want to focus on biblical womanhood. And I don't know if you've ever studied this subject very deeply or in any detail, but if you read the Bible and you are looking for an understanding of God's purpose for woman, God's blessing of woman into the world, of giving woman into the world, you will know that the Bible is unapologetic when it draws our attention to the feminine beauty of womanhood. In Genesis chapter 2, when... Adam first lays eyes on his wife Eve. He expresses his joy and delight in her with a song. He sings this song, At Last. This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. And Adam's words make me think of Etta James and that blues song, At Last. You know that song? I mean, she basically takes the song from this passage, At Last. My love has come along, and my lonely days are over, and life is like a song. I found a dream that I can speak to, a dream that I can call my own. You smiled, you smiled, oh, and then the spell was cast, and here we are in heaven, for you are mine at last. That's something of the spirit behind Adam's words. He's saying, finally. Finally, he's been naming all the animals. He's been seeing all of creation. And he says, finally, that's the one that God has made for me. In the book titled Song of Solomon, Solomon himself speaks about his wife to be. And he uses poetic language as well. He says this in Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Who is this who looks down like the dawn? As beautiful as the moon, as bright as the sun, as awesome as an army with banners. He's speaking of the feminine beauty and strength of his wife. The book of Psalms highlights the unshakable beauty and strength of womanhood as well when it speaks to the daughters of Israel and it calls them pillars cut for the structure of a palace. This is in Psalm 144 and verse 12. He's basically saying they provide an unmatched strength and support for the people of God while at the same time radiating a feminine beauty. The book of Proverbs is filled, again, with gushing words of praise for feminine strength, particularly the feminine strength of, and beauty of an excellent wife. You might be familiar with Psalm 31. Here are some of the ways that this beautiful and excellent wife is described. She is more precious than jewels, she is worthy of the deepest trust. Her slightest touch can bring comfort. The abundance of her works fill her home. She provides enough for her family and she has more to spare for the young women in her life. She is productive in a way that make the leaders of industry marvel at her. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She is productive, she is generous, she is fearless, she is strong and wise and trustworthy and beautiful and praised by her husband and her children and her friends. She fears the Lord and therefore she is to be praised. The vision of womanhood found in the Bible is glorious. God has made women to possess the type of beauty that can move the heart of a nation and the type of strength that can support one. At the same time, the Bible is also clear that the most truthful and lasting beauty of womanhood is not found simply in the outward appearance. In 1 Peter chapter 3, we learn that the adornment of the heart that has an imperishable beauty is that which is found in a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is precious. God's Word reveals that physical beauty is fleeting, but a woman whose trust is in the Lord, a woman who loves and nurtures the faith of those in her family, the woman who embraces the glorious beauty and strength of biblical womanhood, that is a queen among women. The Bible is unapologetic about this. The Bible's vision for womanhood is incredible. It shows that women are unique and invaluable and essential for the accomplishing of the plan of God, as well as for the continuation of humanity itself. God made women on purpose with all of this complexity and all of this feminine wonder built in. And I trust and believe that God wants every woman in this room to fully embrace the dignity and identity and purpose and destiny that he has given to you as a woman. But, as we learned last week, there is a rival vision in our culture on womanhood, a vision that's being promoted today, a vision that rejects the beauty of biblical womanhood for something else entirely. So what I want to do in the next 20 minutes or so is I want us to look at a few things, three things related to biblical womanhood. I want us to consider the question, what is a woman? I want us to look at the fact, and I want to show you that God has made women for a purpose, and that purpose, in in, in great part, is for beauty and for glory. And then I want us to look at three characteristics of biblical womanhood, only three. There are many more, but there's there's much for us to study today. So let's look at this first issue. Let's ask this question What is a woman? And you might think, well, that's a simple, simple question for us to answer. But perhaps you've also noticed that this seems to be a question that produces a great deal of confusion in our particular cultural moment. Our most recent appointee to the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, cannot or was simply unwilling to answer the question, what is a woman during her confirmation hearings? Maybe you saw that, maybe you didn't. Perhaps you've noticed that in the last few years, we have seen the title Woman of the Year bestowed on more than one biological male. In her 2016 book titled Eve in Exile, Rebecca Merkel pointed this out. She said, Bruce Jenner started calling himself a woman publicly, and no one is allowed to argue about it. Glamour Magazine named him Woman of the Year. Incidentally, how hilariously insulting, and this is a quote still, how hilariously insulting is that to all women everywhere? Glamour has declared that a middle-aged white man who's been pretending to be a woman for a grand total of one year is already doing it better than all the rest of us. And this trend continues. This year, USA Today, named Lee Finky as its woman of the year in the state of Minnesota. And uh, another biological woman by the name of Nicole Russell reacted to this by writing Finky is a biological man who transitioned to live as a woman in 2017. Finky's politics aside, this is someone who has lived as a man the majority of their adult life. This is an affront to the extraordinary women of Minnesota. Earlier this year, Matt Walsh. He published a documentary on the Daily Wire. The documentary was titled, What is a Woman? I know many of you have seen it. Many of you have probably also heard of of it. In it, he exposed the fact that the modern secular mindset is simply unable to make anything resembling a rational argument in, in their attempt to answer this question of what is a woman. Modern identity politics, modern gender theory has produced shocking levels of confusion on one of the most basic questions of humanity. And this confusion is not new. This confusion has been around for decades. The the understanding of the identity and the purpose of a woman in 1963. A woman by the name of Betty Friedan. You may have heard of Betty Friedan. Uh, she wrote a book titled The Feminine Mystique, and in this book she explored and exposed the fact that many of the women in her day faced an identity crisis, which she titled The Problem That Has No Name. And following the existentialist philosophers like Rousseau, which I talked about last week, Frieden told women that they needed to go out and define their own identity. Don't look to History. Don't look to modern cultural sensibilities. Don't look to Scripture. Go out and and rediscover yourself. Find out who you are. She told women that they were not complete until they had explored their identity outside the boundaries of family relationships as well as biological roles. So she's a huge influence in the modern feminist movement. And in part, what Frieden was trying to do, what other early feminists were trying to do, is they were trying, in their own words, to fight for equality between men and women. But what it has produced is anything but equality between men and women. When biological men are being named as women of the year, women haven't gained, they've lost. Modern feminism looks at the differences between men and women as a power play, and by doing so, they tip their hand, and they show you that they are relying upon the the politics of power, the dynamics of power, as explained by Karl Marx. Philosophies and ideas have consequences, and this is one of them. And by the way, I, I want you to know this if you didn't already, Modern feminism did not invent the idea that men and women are equal in dignity, worth, and value. That is a biblical truth, and it has always been a biblical truth. The Bible tells us that men and women were both created in the image of God. It tells us that men and women have been equally charged with the divine mandate of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth and subduing it. We are equally given the divine task of expanding the garden, of being God's representatives on earth, but we do not each have the same responsibility in that task. God made Adam and gave him male sexual anatomy and God made Eve and gave her female sexual anatomy and told them to come together, have children, fill the earth, and bring it into order. We each share in God's calling, but our task is different. And our task corresponds to the way God made us and the calling He gave us. Men are called by God to take up the responsibility of manhood within creation, and women are called by God to take up the responsibility of womanhood within creation. And God makes clear that the man alone is not good, but when the man and the woman are together, God says, it is very good. This is what God wants. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan and calling upon us as humanity. By the way, God made women for beauty and for glory. For beauty and for glory as the story of creation moves from Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 2, maybe you've noticed this along the way. I've probably pointed it out to you a few times. But uh, when the story moves from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, we, we see a shift from cosmology and biology and all of these amazing things that God did in this seemingly poetic structure of god said and it was and he he saw that it was good and there was day and there was night the first day and then it moves on there's this repetition that goes on and it's just all of these details are given to us but once we get to genesis chapter 2 the narrative slows down and it focuses in on one aspect of creation it focuses in on the man and the woman the relationship between adam and eve the narrative moves from the creation of the cosmos to the creation of Man, woman, and family, the first family. And before we see this develop, we learn that something is not complete. Something is wrong or something is not good. In, in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, I've already alluded to it, but the Lord God said, it is not good that the man is alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And the reason I point that out is if you don't know this, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, that phrase, not good, should stand out to you. I always share this when I'm doing premarital counseling, and we we talk about this and what it means and the implications of this. But if you don't know what to look for, you don't even know that it's there. But seven different times in Genesis chapter 1, we see that, what, that God makes a thing and he declares it to be good. He makes a thing and he declares it to be good. He makes it and he declares it to be good. And then all of a sudden we get to chapter 2 and we see God says, it's not good. It's like the flow of the story just stops. What's wrong? What has, what has happened? What needs to happen? And, and some of us, we understand this. A man alone, as everyone knows, A lonely man is a dangerous thing waiting to happen, right? But that's not really the issue. The issue is God's not done. His creation is not complete. His work is not over. God says it's not good because for Adam to understand his true identity as a man made in God's image, he must experience something of that loving relationship that God enjoys within the Trinity, as Breck pointed out weeks ago. Yes, Adam had God to relate to, but God the Father wanted to give Adam a helper that was uniquely fit for him in accomplishing the task God had given to humanity. Man can't do that alone. Neither can woman, by the way. This is part of God's plan. So here's what God did. In Genesis 2 and verse 21, it says, "...the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept..." God took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. There's some really interesting things that happen here. The language that we see about God taking and God forming, that's very similar to what we see in Genesis 1. It's very similar to what we see earlier in Genesis chapter 2. But when God makes the woman, he... It's very clear in the text. He makes her in a refined way. Let me me show you what I mean. In verse 19, we read that out of the ground, or out of the earth, or out of the dirt, the Lord God formed every beast. Beasts were formed in that way. In verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed the man from the dirt, from the dust of the ground. Man was made from the dust. The animals were made from the ground. But Eve, the woman, She was made out of man. And one of the ways that we can understand this, the significance of this, is that Eve's substance is more refined than the man. It's doubly refined, in fact. It's also significant, that Adam was created outside the garden and then brought into it while Eve was fashioned inside the garden. And these details help us to understand something of the special work that each of us will be given to do in the world. The man is to focus on establishing the external world of industry and the woman in the nurture of the inner world of the family. And those things are not exclusive, as we see throughout the Scriptures. The man has a great responsibility in the home, and the women are praised for being industrious outside of the home. But those are the primary roles that God intends for man and woman to fill. The narrative of Genesis shows us that the woman is unique amongst all of creation. Everything else is made from the dust. She was not she is doubly refined, fashioned from Adam's ribs. She holds a distinguished place among all of the creatures, and this points to the unique impact that she will have on the world. Women are made to beautify the world. Women are given to refine and, and to bring a civilizing effect into the creation, and she comes alongside her husband to accomplish the purpose of God for humanity. Her beauty is worth singing about. According to Adam, she comes into being within the garden, within the home, and her power as a woman will be to build a family, to fill the earth with image bearers who serve and bring glory to God. This is no small thing. This is an amazing calling. Matthew Henry commented centuries ago, he says, the woman was not made out of Adam's head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. And there she stands, the first woman, pure and lovely and praised by her husband and dear to God. Maybe you've heard that quote before. There is so much for us to learn from Eve about womanhood. And just like we talked last week, it's important for us to understand as men that the calling of God that rested upon Adam still rests upon us. The same is true for the woman today. So with the time we have left, let's consider three characteristics of biblical womanhood that we should be striving after today. Just three. Here they are. Woman as mothers, woman as helpers, and women as teachers. Women as mothers. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 20, there's a title given to Eve. Not only does she have a name that suggests this, but she's given a title, and the title is she is the mother of all the living. When Adam was given the task by God to name all the animals, we, we come to understand in the flow of the text that she was, he was also given the responsibility to name his wife, and he, he names her Eve, and the name Eve means life-giver in Hebrew. And her self-evident biology... As a woman makes clear in an unmistakable way that God made woman to bring life into the world. Women are gloriously different from men. God made us together so that we could be one flesh. He made us together purposefully. He didn't make us to be the same. He made us different, and our differences, the physical differences, the emotional differences, the biological differences, are to be celebrated because in these differences we show more of the glory of God than if we were exactly the same. Our culture is fighting for this idea of androgyny. Androgyny is not a biblical concept. It is a pagan concept. But there is a glorious gift and ability that women possess which is a miracle in and of itself, and it's that women are blessed by God to bring new life into the world. There is nothing ordinary about bearing and nurturing and giving birth to a child. It is a miracle of God. It is an amazing thing. And while the man's role and responsibility in that is an essential part of the process, women alone have been given this ability by God. The calling to fill the earth can only be achieved through the female superpower of childbirth. And there's a, there's a connection that we see in the woman's ability to give birth, to bring a, be a life giver, back to God as the ultimate life giver. God formed the man from the dust. We like to say it this way God, when He created man, He got His hands dirty. And, and, and by saying that, what we're basically saying is there was this intimate relationship between God and man. He knew the man intimately, formed him with his hands, and breathed the breath of life into them. When God made the woman and gave her the ability to bear human life in her womb, she reflects that life-giving ability that God has given to her. She images her creator through her unique and God-given ability to give birth. One of the most amazing things about women is their capacity to give birth to new human beings. And how wickedly ironic is it that within our culture, the one thing that's being consistently presented to women as giving them the freedom to be themselves is this idea that they have the ability to terminate the life within them. Don't let that irony be lost on you. Modern feminism would have women believe that to be an accomplished woman, you need the right to end the human life in your womb rather than to nurture it and bring it into the world. Those are two very different stories. Our culture has this terribly wrong. In fact, just do a a little thought experiment an illustration that might bring this home, which I think you could all probably identify with. If we were watching a, a made for TV story, right? We were watching evening television and we got wrapped up in a story, and this story was trying to depict the modern woman, it is unlikely that women will play any significant role in that story at all, save that they get in the way of her accomplishing her dreams. Imagine that a TV show might show the story of two women. One of them is single and she lives the corporate life. She's sitting at the head of the table in the boardroom. She comes home to her high-rise apartment late at night after a long day of leading her Fortune 500 company and she sits down on her couch with a, a glass of wine to cap off a day of success. And then on the other hand, there's this woman who got married young. She now has three children. She always looks disheveled. She rarely gets out of her sweatpants. She struggles with her domestic life and her soccer mom routine. And when she has a moment to herself, she dreams of having the life of the single woman in the city. And the lesson that our culture wants us to believe is that one of these is successful and fulfilling and productive while the other is pitiable and unfulfilling and undesirable. The culture is pushing an idea of what womanhood is supposed to be. And it is antithetical to the biblical picture. Hollywood does a masterful job of shaping cultural sensibilities around what they think is good and what they think is true and what they think is beautiful. But the God of the Bible consistently, page after page, looks women in the eyes and declares to you that motherhood is a glorious calling. And I'm not suggesting in any way that mothering is the only contribution that women make to this world, but I am saying that it is one of the most amazing ways that women fulfill the purpose of God in their lives. Abigail Dodds writes, The vision our culture offers is a sad consolation that exchanges the glory of feminine strength for a treadmill race to nowhere. She goes on, she says, "...it squanders the kind of influence that is found primarily in the soil of the home." The home, that center of all learning, the heart of nation building, the dispenser of love and stability, the venue for gospel hospitality, for single and married alike, in short, the very footings of humanity. This home-based influence, because of Christ, can last for a thousand generations, yet our culture urges us to cast it aside for the pursuit of rewards a little less off in the distance and certainly ones that don't require diapering. I don't have to tell most of you this, but I desperately want you to hear it from me, that mothering is a high and noble calling given by God to women, and it should be valued and pursued with great joy. But there's more here. We've looked at women as mothers. What about women as the helpers this world needs? When, When God saw that the man was alone, it was not good. The next thing he did was to make a helper fit for the man or a companion fit for him. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that two are better than one and woe to him who is alone. Solitude can turn paradise into a desert and a palace into a dungeon, Matthew Henry says. But there is more to this than just the fact that God didn't want Adam to be lonely. Adam had a calling to fulfill the purpose of God and it required the unique gifts that the woman would bring. And contrary to what some might think, this role of being a helper, at least biblically speaking, it carries absolutely no connotation of diminished worth or status. And we know this to be true from the fact that Scripture uses this exact same word to describe the work that God does in helping His people. I won't give you all of the quotes that relate to this. I'll give you a few. In Psalm 33 and verse 20, it says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Psalm 146 and verse 5, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. This word helper or ezer is a functional term that describes one who comes alongside another to aid that person in their responsibility and need. It implies that the man is unable to do his task alone and vice versa. And so God created the woman to come and be the helper for Adam. He could have been the helper himself, right? God could have done that himself. He chose another path. He could have created another man, but God chose another path. God fashioned the woman to be Adam's companion, the one he needed, the one that his heart desired, and the complementary partner that helps him to fulfill the mission of God. And the Bible is filled with stories of women who display this characteristic of womanhood. You, you remember Sarah, Abraham's wife? Sarah respected her husband, even when it doesn't seem like he really knew what he was doing. And she helped Abraham to stay faithful to God's plan. And by doing so, she is, becomes the model of respect that women are to receive. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6. You remember the story of Rahab? Rahab was, was, well, she wasn't really the godliest of women, but in a very key moment, what does she do? She was brave and she was courageous and she hid the Hebrew spies and she is celebrated as one who helped the, the people of God to accomplish their task of moving into the promised land. What about Deborah? You remember Deborah from Judges 4? She was a leader. She was actually a judge. But she didn't just lord her authority as a judge over everyone. She actually gave wise counsel to Barak and helped to strengthen his resolve to lead the army of God's people. Who could forget about Ruth and her life-saving help that she gave to her mother-in-law? And by her bold actions, she became the wife of Boaz as well as a matriarch in the line of Jesus. Or don't forget about Esther, who risked her life before the king in order to help her people. Or what about young Mary, who received the words of an angel and then joyfully became the mother of our Lord, helping to nurture the Son of God and the Savior of the world. There are countless women in Scripture that we could look at, and there are countless women in this room. Countless women in this room who bear no title... And yet, their consistent and faithful service and help and ministry and discipling of children and other women and being per- participated in all kinds of different ways, these women, you, are, are fulfilling that calling and responsibility to be the helpers God has made you to be. Not just for your family, but also for the church. These heroic women, they took chances, they overcome difficult rulers and circumstances. Some of these women in the list in Scripture, they do that even though they're not married to a husband. They do this independently, understanding their responsibility from God, and they do this as the intelligent helpers that God has designed them to be. Don't neglect or overlook the calling to be the helper God has made you to be. And then third, mothers, helpers, teachers. Women are the teachers who train the world. I can think of a thousand passages, but one of them is more pointed, and it's from Titus chapter 2. You've heard people talk about the Titus 2 ministry of women. Here's what it says. Women are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and by doing so, train the young women to love their husbands and children. The role of mothering is wonderful, but bringing a child into the world is just the beginning, right? Every mother in the room knows that. Teaching and training the child is the next step. And women are uniquely gifted and called to this work. Not exclusively, but uniquely gifted and called to this. And this calling is not just a calling to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, which many of you do. It's a calling to disciple your children and the next generation For the glory of God. That's what what this text is telling these women to do. It's to understand that by taking your wisdom and pouring that into the next generation, you get to be a part of that long-term goal of discipling the nations, discipling the world, not just your home. This plan may look simple on its face, but the generational scope cannot be missed when older, mature women take the wisdom that they have learned over the years and pour that wisdom and truth into the younger generation of women in the church who are just getting started, the result is a multi-generational impact for Christ. The practical wisdom and experience of one godly woman can bear fruit for decades if she is faithful to pass it on, and younger ladies, listen to me, and if younger women are willing and faithful to receive it, Sisters, don't despise the days of small things. Those conversations that you have with an older sister in the hallway on Sunday or those text messages that you send out to a young mother on Monday. Those things matter far beyond the moment. They are intended to matter. Women... Sisters, God has called you to not only be the mothers of this generation, but also the godly guides for the next generation. God has made you and called you to be those people who shape the culture of the world by shaping the home and the family and the generation that is still growing into maturity. And God wants to use you to craft a legacy of faithfulness. And by the grace of God, you will do this in a thousand different ways. Womanhood is a calling to be productive, to bring life into the world, to exert a civilizing and beautifying effect upon the world, to shape new life, nurture it, and guide it towards its own God ordained purpose. Womanhood is about life giving and nurturing and helping and teaching and training and so many other things. Don't despise this work, and certainly don't let the culture tell you that the real work of women is in breaking glass ceilings. The real work of women is being faithful to the calling of God. And I want to close with another quote from Abigail Dodd. She was writing for Desiring God, and and she's giving some what I believe to be much-needed encouragement to our women. So I'll close with this quote. Feminine glory is suited only for a woman. Not because men and women have nothing in common. We have everything in common. We are bone of the same bone and flesh of the same flesh. But because our sameness only makes sense in light of the triune God who is distinct in three persons. When we forsake, and she's talking to ladies here, when we forsake our feminine glory in pursuit of the uniqueness that belongs to men, we abandon our God-given glory, we become usurpers persistently insisting that our uterus and biology are equal to nothing, irrelevant. Strong language. she finishes with this. Women... Believe the lie that in order to be relevant in a man's world, you become like a man when the opposite is true. Do you want to be relevant? Then shock the world and be what you were made to be, a fearless, unflappable, God-fearing woman. Do not abandon the very differences that make you essential to God's plan. That's my hope for you and my encouragement. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word and I thank you for the, the opportunity to speak these truths over to the la- over the ladies here at Cornerstone and I pray I know there are questions I know there are bigger things maybe to think on maybe there are such broader implications than what I can fathom but father these truths are necessary and they are fundamental help our sisters to see this to embrace it and help us as a church especially as men but as a church to celebrate that God-given glory of feminine beauty and strength. Would you bless our family? Would you bless our ladies today? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.